You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Campus Beat. I'm Dinah Jansen. On April 28th, Queen's University announced that the university has selected the longtime Indigenous rights advocate, former senator, and former chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the Honorable Murray Sinclair, to serve as the 15th Chancellor of Queen's, succeeding Jim Leach, who has held the role since 2014. As an experienced national leader and advocate, His honor will be well-positioned to offer insight and guidance to the university, and he'll begin his new role on July 1st. And today, we have the great pleasure of welcoming his honor, Murray Sinclair, to our virtual studio. Welcome, Murray. Well, thank you. Thank you for uh, allowing me to be part of this. Again, thank you so much, and congratulations and welcome to Queen's University. Murray, we'd love to hear a little bit more about you. Perhaps we can hear a little bit about the work that you've done in advocacy and law over the years to get us started today. Ah, okay. Well, how much uh, of a nutshell do you want me to try to squeeze this into? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I was a judge for 30 years. Um, I started, I graduated from law school in 1979 and um, started practicing law uh, after my article year uh, with a uh, law firm uh, that was focused primarily on litigation. I like being in the courtroom. I learned that in law school. I actually went to law school to get into politics because I was very much involved in political activism on behalf of the indigenous community. Um, and so I, I went to law school, hopefully to get into politics to address some of the public policy issues that were of real interest to me. But while I was in law school, I, I really um, came to love arguing, arguing in a, you know, in a way that might be persuasive and reading and researching law and, um, and being able to fashion an argument, put things together. And, um, and uh, so I, I decided to, to practice law for a while after I got out of law school and then um, got into mainly litigation, criminal and civil litigation. And then because of my um, indigenous uh, uh, background, I uh, kind of naturally swerved into the field of representing indigenous clients and therefore representing Indigenous uh, issues to the court, and, uh, and that became sort of part of my focus was in dealing with Indigenous issues. I got involved in claims negotiations and negotiating um, major funding agreements with uh, the government of Canada. And then in 1988, I was asked if I wanted to become a judge, and I said, "No, this is uh, far too interesting to be a lawyer. Becoming a judge is really boring." And I didn't want her to hang out with all those old guys anyway, because they're pretty boring guys. <laughs> so they had to ask me three times. Uh, each time I turned them down. But on the third time, they got uh, um, Phil Fontaine, Elijah Harper, Eric Robinson, and uh, a couple of other uh, Indigenous leaders in Manitoba to gang up on me. And they persuaded me that um, I should accept the offer because then I would open the doorway for other Indigenous lawyers to become judges. And uh, by the time I, and then I was to the provincial court, so I was the associate chief judge. I became involved in the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry and 
by the time I left the provincial court and moved on to the Queen's Bench, we had uh, 12 Indigenous judges in Manitoba. And when I left the Court of Queen's Bench and retired from that after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, there were probably 25 or 26, but more importantly, all across Canada, there was uh, almost 120 Indigenous judges all across Canada. Whereas before, when I was appointed, there were only two of us in the whole country. And so that just indicates the magnitude of the, of the growth and the interest that law had for um, Indigenous people generally. And so I think that was a, a good sign of the kind of change that we were trying to work for. Thank you so much. Now, Murray, can you tell us a little bit about where you're from and how developments in that community led to your many years of advocacy for it and other Indigenous communities across Canada? Uh, well, I was born in the um, former St. Peter's Indian Reserve, north of Selkirk, Manitoba, which is north of Winnipeg, about 20 miles. Okay. Uh, along both sides of the river uh, was the first reserve that was created signing after the signing of Treaty Number 1 in 1870. Uh, St. Peter's was the reserve that was created for the St. Peter's Band, uh, led by Henry Prince, who was the son of Chief Peguis, who had signed a treaty with Lord Selkirk back in 1811. Uh, so he had a long history of uh, welcoming uh, the settler community into the territory and assisting them to, to become part of the environment and part of the, the community. And so uh, that was the community that I came from. Uh, but what happened was that uh, beginning in 19, uh, 1889, uh, the government decided that that land was too good to be left in the hands of indigenous people. It was prime agricultural land. And the reason it was, was because uh, the St. Peter's Band were well-known farmers in the area and they farmed that land quite extensively. And uh, a lot of this is written about in uh, Sarah Carter's book, uh, Lost Harvest. Mm -hmm. um, but they, they farmed the land. And, and so the government decided they wanted to kick them off the land and, and bring non-indigenous settlers on. And so, uh, they tried to force the indigenous people of St. Peter's to give up the land. And they finally forced them off in 1913. That was declared illegal by the Federal Court of Canada in 1916 or so. And the government passed a law called the St. Peter's Reserve Act, uh, legitimizing the illegality that they had done and uh, setting up a trust fund so that everybody who bought land from the old St. Peter's Reserve had to pay an extra dollar per acre into a trust fund. Uh, the St. Peter's Band never actually saw any of that. Um, all of the people from St. Peter's were forcibly moved up to Peguis, which is north of here, about 150 miles. And when I learned that story from my grandfather as a young boy, I determined to try to do something about it. And uh, that was part of one of my one of my first social and political political activists. Uh, activities was to try to do something about that. Yes. And, uh, and, uh, and so when I was in law school, that became one of the first cases I undertook for the Tigris First Nation was to challenge the illegal surrender. It resulted in a settlement of a, of a claim uh, that the government paid $250 million for in 
after I had long become a judge, but uh, uh, we started the claim, I started the claim and, and then it got settled after my appointment to the bench. Um, but I was involved in a number of other claims uh, during that period of time as well, including the Manitoba Métis Federation's land claim mm -hmm. uh, under the Manitoba Act. Uh, I, I drafted and filed the first uh, statement of claim and, uh, and became involved in a lot of those uh, illegal surrender type claims, but also which had high political overtones. And, uh, and that's sort of why I enjoyed the practice of law was because I saw law as a vehicle that would allow us to address some of those patently illegal activities that had gone on in the past. And I started teaching uh, Indigenous law and in some of those legal cases at the University of Manitoba beginning about 1981 and uh, did that throughout my career as a lawyer till I was appointed to the bench in 1988. Hmm, okay, so it sounds like the work that you were doing through your activism and legal career also positioned you very well for the work you would subsequently take up for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Can we learn more about your work and role there? Um, well, when I was appointed to the provincial court in 1988, within a week of being appointed to the provincial court, I was asked to chair the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry, which looked at the relationship between Indigenous people and the justice mm -hmm. system. Um, so that uh, experience running an inquiry um, attracted those who were looking to appoint commissioners to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. TRC was set up as part of the settlement agreement between the residential school survivors who had sued the government and won a, a large settlement from them um, uh, and the churches. Uh, but as part of the settlement agreement, uh, the government and the churches agreed to set up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, much along the lines of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, to hold hearings to um, get survivors to be able to come forward and tell their stories and hopefully to bring in uh, some of those who had been the victimizers uh, of the wrongs in the past uh, and to see if there could be a reconciliation process that was established. Um, and, and so uh, uh, they initially asked me to do it, but I said, because of other inquiries that I had done, and in particular, I had done another inquiry called the, the Pediatric Cardiac Surgery Inquiry, in which I investigated the deaths of 12 babies. Um, that took a lot out of me emotionally. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm, I'm just not emotionally ready to do another major task like that. Um, so they appointed another set of commissioners um, and uh, they, they fell apart within a year. And I could see that the impact of that on the survivors of residential schools was quite uh, dr drastic, that they, they, they were very distressed by the fact that their truth commission was not gonna be available to them. So uh, I was concerned about that. And when, um, uh, Thomas Berger called me and asked me if I would reconsider and, and Justice Iacobucci, who was chairing the selection committee, also asked me if I would resubmit my name. I said I would, I would do that. Uh, but I, I had certain terms and conditions and they agreed to those and, and that allowed us to establish a commission which I felt uh, would be properly mandated and properly focused. And we 
started doing that work in 2009 and we finished in 2015. And I think we had a significant impact upon the uh, awareness level of all Canadians about the residential schools. Thank you so much for these insights about uh, this work of such huge national significance. Uh, yeah, so I wonder how, how might this have led to your appointment to the Senate of Canada? Can you tell us about that and maybe some of the work you did there too? It's always been a mystery to me about who started that process. I, um, it, I, I retired from the, the court uh, immediately after the TRC ended. The TRC ended in 2015. And uh, so I re resigned, uh, retired from the court and took my pension in uh, um, February 2016 and uh, was really enjoying my life away from the public eye because what I said then was that my lifetime has been devoted to working as a public figure to try to uh, influence uh, society and society's leaders uh, to do the right thing and to think about things in a different way. <clears throat> I said, but now it's time for me to step mm -hmm. back and give more time to my family. And, uh, and so that was really what my, my intent was. Um, and then I was out, <clears throat> excuse me, I was out walking the dog one day and my cell phone rang and it was the prime minister. Uh, totally out of the blue. And he said, I'd like to appoint you to the Senate. And uh, I said, really? And <laughs> he said, yeah, you know, you, you had such an impact because of the TRC. <coughs> he said, I, I, I'm hoping that we can change the image of the Senate and I'd like you to be part of that process of change. And I said, yeah, but just look at it from my perspective for a while. You, I've just come off the highest uh, moment in my life with the TRC and, and I've uh, this, uh, had this significant impact upon Canadian society and, uh, and the, the role of judge in Canadian society is one of the most respected roles in all of society and, uh, and I think I've done a good job at that and you want me to go to the Senate? Like, uh, Really? <laughs> and uh, he said, yes, because I think the Senate's uh, reputation needs to be enhanced too. <laughs> so I said, I would consider it. I said, uh, I needed time to talk to my family and uh, I did. Uh, and, uh, and when I did talk to my family, I gathered together all my children, my grandchildren who were here and we had a family dinner. And I said, so what does everybody think? Everybody had a chance to have some input, including my granddaughter and, uh, uh, and my, uh, but they all agreed on one thing that um, the, the real important viewpoint was that of my wife. And uh, so I said to her at the end of all of their input, I said, so tell me what you think. And she said, well, you've been home for three weeks now. And uh, You've reorganized the cupboards three times, and I can't find a damn thing. So I was gonna, <laughs> I was gonna ask you to get a part-time job outside of the house, anyways. <laughs> you're you're, get, you're kind of getting underfoot. You're in my territory. <laughs> so I said, okay. Does this sound like the kind of part-time thing that would meet that need? <laughs> she said, yeah, but you're not gonna do it forever. So 
I agreed to do it for five years. And when the five years rolled around, I, I <laughs> stepped out. And now with that in mind, how did you come to find yourself as chancellor of Queen's University? How does one become a chancellor? What was your experience? Yeah. <clears throat> I have no idea how I came to be in the running, uh, other than I'm guessing just as much as anybody is. Uh, Queen's University uh, honored me with a, um, an honorary degree uh, a number of years ago now. I've forgotten exactly when. But I received an honorary degree from Queen's University. And in my convocation address at that time, uh, I pointed out to them that, you know, it was with a little bit of trepidation that I accepted the honorary degree because Queen's University had a law school named after Sir John A. Macdonald, who had come in for a lot of criticism during the TRC process and in the TRC report. And that uh, the major road leading into Queen's University, what I think was called Macdonald Way or something like that, Maybe Sir John A. Macdonald Way, I just forgot. Sir John A. Macdonald Boulevard. Yeah. So I said, so that tells me that this community seems to be dedicated to the uh, revival or the constant renewal of um, the memory of Sir John A. Macdonald. And I said, and, and that, that has to be a matter of some concern. And uh, I think that we need to reconsider that. Uh, mm -hmm. in our process of reconciliation. But I said, that doesn't mean that we throw it all out. And, and my message was, we need to think about how we can take all of this knowledge that we have of history now, the more balanced view of history that we have developed and see how we can combine it all together so that our message going forward to our children and our grandchildren is not only a message of awareness of the past and what we can learn from it, but also a message of hope for the future there to, to have a better relationship. And I said, we still, we, we, we need to honor the, the principle that, uh, the, that education is the key to reconciliation. And that means that institutions of education, such as post-secondary institutions have a role to play in ensuring that our leaders of the future know how to talk better to and about each other. And that's why um, I accepted the honorary degree. Uh, and then when I was asked if I would accept this, it was an email straight out of the blue from the principal, uh, Patrick Dean, who uh, was a, somebody I had known quite well at the University of Winnipeg. Uh, his daughter had been a student of my son's at Kelvin High School in Winnipeg. And hmm. uh, so, so he sent me a very tantalizing email and, uh, and uh, then we had a phone conversation and uh, he, would ask, he asked me if he could put forward my name as for consideration. Uh, and I said, well, I'm willing to consider it. Um, so uh, go ahead and then we'll see where this conversation goes. And since then we've had a, a few other conversations and uh, conversations with other members of the Board of Governors, the Board of Regents, and um, they've all been very positive. And I think uh, Queen's University is ready, is ready to look at how it can contribute to that idea of education being the key to reconciliation and the changing the way that we educate our students, both the little ones as well as the older ones. Okay, so what role will you play in leadership and stewardship of Queen's University during your term as Chancellor? 
Well, if you ask the people who've ever worked with me and for me, they will tell you that I'm a very hands-on guy. And so I said to, uh, to Patrick, I said, if it weren't for the pandemic, I said, I'd be down there today. I'd be down there tomorrow. I'd be down there helping to organize meetings so that we could have a dialogue, begin a dialogue about what is it that we're now facing? Uh, what is it that we need to do? Um, and what is it that we can do? And uh, we don't need to look at uh, uh, wholesale immediate change necessarily, but we do really need to look at uh, having a plan of action going forward. And what is that plan? If you don't have a plan of action, then your failure to have a plan means you're planning to fail. So you got to pay attention. And on that note, do you have any specific goals that you would like to achieve as chancellor? Uh, well, yeah, I think <laughs> changing the name of the law school is a, is a worthy goal uh, from the beginning. Um, but um, I am uh, willing to engage in dialogue, which um, takes into consideration what all the possibilities are. Yeah. If, we, uh, if we can have a, a, a way of finding a, a, a way to... <clears throat> to maintain a sense of our history, which allows us to stand tall and proud, that uh, minimizes the, the damage that we will be doing to each other simply by erasing names from history or erasing names from conversations. That would be the ideal. And, uh, you know, I, I just was on a phone call with uh, students and faculty from, from Ryerson University. And I said, you know, one of the things that concerns me the most is that um, the name of Egerton Ryerson has been bandied about when it comes to uh, in residential schools. And so his work has often been pointed to as a foundation for residential schools going forward. But we really haven't researched the guy. We haven't really looked at what did he think later on when he was an old man and he saw the way the residential schools were developing. Um, and what do we think he would have said about how they ended up being? Would he think the same way? Would he have said the same things? Would he have uh, ameliorated his viewpoint in any way? Uh, I think we need to get a better understanding of the person as a whole. Um, and maybe we have that with Sir John, but uh, more importantly, I think we need to have a better understanding of the society as a whole that allowed all of this to develop. Great. Wow. Thank you so much for those insights. Have you anything else to add before we close today? I am really looking forward to this opportunity. Uh, Queen's University is a stellar reputation in the academic community. Uh, you're an example of that. So I, uh, I want to congratulate you for being one of its graduates, but more importantly, I think that uh, I have met a lot of uh, graduates from Queens over the years, uh, all of whom impressed me with their intellect and their commitment to this country. And uh, I'm looking forward to working with people like that, both the alumni as well as the, the current faculty and staff and um, board of governors and the uh, students who are there to see what we could do to make this an institution in which we will all continue to be proud of in, their, in 
in a good way for the right reasons. Well, thank you so much, folks. We have been chatting with His Honor Murray Sinclair, newly appointed as the 15th Chancellor of Queen's <laughs> University, commencing July 1st. Welcome and congratulations, Murray. Thank you for joining us here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.